Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of The American Attic, where we deliver dialogue-driven explorations of California history and beyond. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover topics that inspire imagination, inform action, and enrich the present. What are the roles of religious communities in shaping an urban culture? How do ethnic groups settle, organize, and then begin to influence the environment that they find themselves in? What role does Sacramento, California in particular play in illustrating the patterns of religious and more specifically Catholic experience in the United States? These questions and their answers are just the tip of the iceberg of what we'll be discussing in today's episode of The American Attic. And part of the mission of the Sacramento Historical Society is simply to preserve the heritage of the Sacramento region, to promote this heritage, and to share insights like what are discussed in today's episode with a broader audience. And we are pleased to share a discussion with a guest today who has been involved in Sacramento history for decades in some way, shape, or form. And he is a professor at Marquette University. He is an author. He is a all-around Sacramento scholar. The guy knows his stuff. And in today's episode, we discuss his forthcoming book that will be published. We'll be looking at the process that historians follow to bring lessons from the past to a wider audience and make sure that they are useful, accurate, objective, all of the things that we appreciate in historical and documentary style works. And this is all conducted through the lens of the religious history of California's capital, specifically the Catholic experience and the Catholic presence that has had such an impact on local history in this particular corner of California. So without further ado, please enjoy this rambling and roving conversation with Dr. Stephen Avella. Well, we are back with Steve Avella. Steve, you are one of a handful of returning guests, I'm happy to say. So thank you again for taking the time today. Glad to do it, Eric. Glad to be able to talk about Sacramento history. Yes. And you have been uh, you have been very active from what it looks like uh, the last few years and in, in working on mm-hmm. a new a new project. And I think that's probably where we can uh, kick things off on this episode is just to chat a little bit about the project, go into the details, obviously, of, of what you've been working on, how it fits in with Sacramento history and history kind of writ large. So before we take a look at your, your current project and what it contains, just wanted to ask you right off the bat, how's it going? How's the uh, how's how's the book coming? Are you are you what what stage are you at in the uh, in the production? I'm actually finished with this book, Eric. This this one, uh, despite some supply chain issues, uh-huh. uh, uh, is printed. It's ready to go. I just touched base with the with the, the marketer this morning, and it's been in transit. I believe it's printed in England. They, they, that's where a lot of these popular uh, histories are printed now, and then it was shipped in March and the warehouse man says any day now. So pretty soon it, it should be appearing on the list of Amazon and then directly through Arcadia press. Arcadia does a lot of that of the marketing for what is called Font Hill uh, media. Again, the, there's just a, an array of these uh, popular books that have covered all kinds of interesting aspects of Sacramento and, and they specialize in local history. Maybe. Yeah. Cultivate people who aren't, you know, uh, professional historians. Uh, a lot of picture books, a lot of that. My my work went through them, and it's it's done. It's absolutely yeah. done. And and hopefully, uh, by the time people hear this podcast, they'll be able to get it. Great. Well, well, congratulations. You know, an, another uh, another milestone. It sounds like. Yeah, it's it's it was wonderful work. I enjoyed it immensely, and I, I I still love. Research and writing. I, the, the people in the California room at uh, at uh, 
at the State Library and the people at the Center for Sacramento History and the Sacramento Room of the Public of the Public uh, Library. They all know me and yeah. kind of say, "Oh, you're back." Huh? Okay, <laughs> and they're, they're just delightful people. I've been Great. extraordinarily gifted with some wonderful friends in all of these locations. So, yeah, that's great. I was actually just over there a month or two ago. Um, my company is—they uh, have some items and artifacts over at the archives there at the Sacramento uh, Center for Sacramento History. So it's amazing when you go back in there into the archives. I feel—I mean, in this actually is something I'm curious about because you have spent time in the Vatican archives, correct? Yes, yes. I'm actually going back again in October for a couple of weeks to to work on something that I fought with them to get access to. You have to kind of go to do do our hand-to-hand combat with them sometimes for things. <laughs> but I actually won a case and so I'm going over there and uh yeah, it'll it's it's been fun. Uh, there, it's that's it's some different challenges there. Language being one of them, but I'll tell you, it is really a fertile uh, source of information for American historians too. Uh, much of the people who work in there work in medieval history, and yeah. you know, of course, you know, their artifacts go back into ancient times, and their documentary evidence is is abundant. But if you're doing American history, some of the stuff I've done on Sacramento has drawn from that Vatican research, so. Fascinating stuff, different perspective, sure, uh, and stuff you're not going to easily learn over here. So. Yeah, no, I was, I, I've never been to the Vatican archives, but when I was just in the what the center has, I was um, just amazed with the the treasure trove that's there. Um, oh gosh, that that is a that's a gem. I mean, you, a lot of that stuff was acquired by the late Jim Henley. Did you know Jim? I did not. Oh, gosh, you missed really one of the giants of Sacramento history. He collected everything and, and got all kinds of, not only his, the, the heart of it is the McClatchy collection, yeah. which he managed to get uh, one of the, the most documented journalists in American history, without a doubt. Yeah. He, and Jim got all that. But he also collected, you know, Sacramentiana, like shaky signs and, yeah. you know, different different uh, signage from well-known Sacramento uh, businesses that had gone out of existence. And then, again, all sorts of uh, collection items from various Sacramentans who, look, my grandfather left me all this stuff. What is it? And you would discover, you know, this is one of the founding fathers of Sacramento, or here was a guy who was a former mayor, so on and so on. Jim has it all. In addition, it, they have a magnificent photo archive. Yeah. For this book I've, I've done, I, they, they were a great source of, of help for that. Great. Well, before I forget, I'll just do a little uh, name drop. The, the title of the book is Indomitable Sacramentans. And, um, you know, I think a, a good place to start and before we get into kind of the details of it, how do you decide on some of the titles for some of these these books? Because this is not your first uh, this is not your first book, so I'm I'm curious. Do you have a process for determining the title of of something like that, or is it just whatever inspires you? Well, when I think about Sacramento, the term "indomitable," in other words, you, you can't beat this place down. It it keeps coming back. I discovered that way early in the in the '90s. I was going through some old correspondence, and they had uh, a picture of the state capitol, which had been erected by that time and it had sacramento urbs in domita now i've studied latin most of my life and uh, indomitable city and i thought well yeah that's it this city was kind of born out of sort of an exploit it was an instant city mm-hmm. born out of the gold rush born on low land <laughs> you know which flooded yeah. and the city sustained a lot of trauma in its first existence the floods the fires the floods the fires and then uh then you know with the diminution of the gold fever you know it kind of settled into a period of lassitude and then but then it reinvents itself you get a cadre of merchants citizens and others who who want to improve the quality of the city who want to pave it who want to maintain its trees uh, to create a more viable uh, urban culture, and 
it seems to me that's what Sacramento always seems to do. That they, they you know, look at K Street. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of the historic Bill. Um, yeah, his last name is escaping me now. Bill. He wrote a book about K Street, and K Street's a perfect example. I mean, that was a, a vital shopping center and then it kind of deteriorated and then then they made an urban mall out of it and that worked for a while and then that sort of deteriorated and then it then then they got the light rail and and so k street you know is in the is kind of a, a visual image of a part of the city that keeps reinventing itself it keeps yeah. a, alive um the elements of of an urban culture as well it should and california is the largest state in the union and its capital should reflect, you know, a sort of a, you know, a, a positive culture. Sure. So when I saw that on that thing, I thought, well, that that to me is something that encapsulates the spirit of Sacramento, mm-hmm. uh, and people who refuse to be beat down, people who refuse to just accept uh, the, the you know the woes and misfortunes of nature, of you know bad governance. Of, yeah. You know, the inevitable decline of of urban centers that part of the larger urban history of the United States, and and they come back, and I was pleased. I just ran into this fellow, the fellow who who was one of the uh, executives of the Sacramento Republic. You know, the, the 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 he contacted me and asked about using that title. I think I think they use that as kind of their chance, Sacramento Indomitable City. Yeah, and uh, we had a mutual friend, and I had a luncheon with him. I just ran into him uh, back in uh, earlier this year, and suddenly he thanked me again for bringing that to his attention and all that. But yeah, when I saw this book, when I saw these people that I wanted to highlight, people who had been lost in history, people mm-hmm. whose names were not attached to to things or were erased, mm-hmm. and I wanted to you know bring them up. Like the lost city of Atlantis, I thought these people didn't give up. They yeah. they really wanted they wanted their own ethnic space. Uh, they wanted to make significant contributions to the beauty, uh, the culture of the city, and and the vehicle of the Catholic Church was the way for them to do that because they, they could become the object of philanthropy of these people's generosity. So they were indomitable. Yeah. Sure. This is my city. This is my town. This is the. This is where I want to uh, make my mark. Yeah, and uh, that's that, that kind of that's hopefully the theme that runs through all the chapters of the book. And and I think it does. I um <clears throat> just from what I saw with the materials that you shared with me already, did this was this book something that you've kind of always wanted to tackle a, a project you always wanted to take on, or did it kind of arise organically in the last? you know, two to three years of your scholarship in general, was it kind of more recent or was this something that you had always, you know, wanted to kind of organize and put together? It came from earlier scholarship. My my first venue into studying the history of religion in Sacramento focused on the elites, it focused on the ministers, it focused on the, the movers and shakers, the people at the top, the people who were visible representations of their denomination or of particular spiritual movements. But as I got to, to thinking about it, and, and I, was in, I was asked to give a talk out in El Dorado Hills, and I thought, I want to do something a little different here and talk about the hidden people uh, who really did a lot of work, but who were passing away and whose contributions were going to be lost. Now, where I I spoke was called Holy Trinity Parish in El Dorado Hills, which is a comparatively recent uh, addition to the Catholic Church in the Diocese of Sacramento. And there were still people around who had been in on the origins of that church, which was built sometime in the 90s. And, and, And what I wanted to do was, first of all, accentuate their contributions. And secondly, you folks here in El Dorado Hills should be sitting down with these people, making them talk into a tape recorder, have somebody take notes, and you should be saving these memories of the folks who were in on this so that a future generation can look back and say, yeah, uh, 
these people really, I mean, they are the ones who had the fundraisers. They went door to door. They were in on the architectural meetings. They were in with, you know, planning the layout of the parish. They were the first people who met in a bingo hall or someplace mm-hmm. for, for the first religious services. That that shouldn't be lost because that's integral to the to the to the heart of, of this Catholic experience. And it was out of that then I, you know, as I was driving home that night, I'm thinking, you know, you really ought to do something with that and start looking at, you know, the hidden figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a movie, of course, as you remember about those African American yeah. women that were were instrumental in the success of of, of the uh, you know of the uh, space yeah. program in the United yeah. States. I said we have hidden figures too, people whose contributions were substantial, significant, and yet nobody ever hears about them. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to do something about that, at least to the extent that I can. Sure. No, it's it's and that definitely comes through in in the book. I think it's it's a wealth of uh, stories that even even folks that have a robust knowledge of Sacramento and local history, there's plenty of surprises to be had in that, I think, which actually leads me to something else I was curious about, you know, when you were doing the research or for, first of all how long kind of bookmarking for us how long would you say the the research portion of this was when you said okay this is i'm going to take this on are we looking at you know 10 months are we looking at two years of kind of concerted effort in the research phase for this it took me about a year and a half to write it because okay. i'm also working at school and i've got other responsibilities too mm-hmm. so Catch as catch can, you know, would sit down and work on a chapter. Summers were always a good time for me, and then time also to go to microfilm and other things. It had several different fonts. One was the research I had already done on the Catholic Church in Sacramento. I published a book from the University of Nevada Press, Sacramento and the Catholic Church, which was a, a very scholarly effort that uh, brought me into a lot of information. I consulted archives. I tapped into the papers of of Charles McClatchy, who also he was a fallen away Catholic, but you know he was he was quite uh, significant. Uh, a variety of different archival sources, and then with that font, with my basic knowledge, I then branched out and I started to look where you look for information about hidden people, and that would be on the pages of Catholic newspapers and periodicals, and and less well circulated. Uh, source material that mm-hmm. existed in Sacramento. So I spent lots of time scrolling through microfilms at at the um, at, at the State Library, the California California room of the State Library. I spent lots of time going through some of the collections at uh, the Center for Sacramento History of people that that I knew about, and that would that would be like the second font. And then the third font was pictorial evidence you know mm-hmm. again uh some of this is not going to be recorded but these stories aren't going to be recorded in official or documentary sources or if their documentary sources existed uh they were long gone yeah. uh, i also looked at wills and and uh, estate settlements and things of that nature which was all at, at the center for sacramento history but then I started going through pictures and looking at things and and asking questions and saying, you know, where did this come from? What was this all about? I mean, the most obvious one was like the the clock that used to be in the tower at the cathedral. Mm-hmm. Well, this this was built bought by a woman by the name of Bethel, who was the widow of a very wealthy Sacramentum, had lots of money, and she. Uh, put up the money for the clock, the clockworks, which went in about 1900, 1901, somewhere around there, very expensive. That chimed in the new year, I think, in 1901. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing it as a kid. During World War II, the, the clock mechanism had stopped working, but one of the priests went up there on VJ Day and started ringing the bell manually, you know, and trying to get that clock uh, going again. Mm-hmm. The clock was eventually. Uh, dismantled and left in a pile in front of the cathedral when they renovated it in the 70s. A collector picked up all those pieces, reassembled the clock. It now sits 
in that room, that big archives warehouse in at the Center for Sacramento History, perfectly put. It's a, it's an antique of, of great wow. significance. But this woman, no one knew her name, Mary Bethel. That game that is not familiar to the majority of Sacramentans and, and others. But here, she gave this clock whose chime rang out across Sacramento for 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 many many years. Uh, and uh, she also contributed to the Christian Brothers School. It used to be where the Weinstock building is on 12th and K. Uh, she contributed substantial amounts of money to that. And again, her name's gone. Her name is erased. Mm-hmm. Well, I found her. I found her husband's will. I found her will. Uh, and then I found little scraps and tidbits. Even her obituary was very, very small. Uh, but there's the kind of person you should know something about. I yeah. mean, this. This lady left something of really important significance to the Catholic Church in Sacramento. And uh, fortunately, again, that, that clockwork still exists. I don't know what they're ever going to do with it, but it's, yeah. it's, quite, a, it's quite a remarkable feat that, that, this, um, that she was able to do this and that you know, it was of such positive benefit to, to people in the city, not just the Catholic church, but people in the city. It could set their watches by that stroke of that bell. Yeah. Very, very, very important public monument. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's, that's something too, that for fans of history and some of our listeners, of course, the process of um, historical scholarship is definitely something that like, often gets overlooked or sometimes gets overlooked when people get to an age or get to a point in their life where they start to appreciate history more, which in my opinion, everyone gets there uh, at Mm -hmm. some point or another, everybody gets to a point where they start looking at the past with renewed interest. Um, However that comes about, I have a lot of family members that, um, you know, I was lucky enough to, to study it at university and things like that, but I'm, excited that people get to that point you know you've mm-hmm. spent a good chunk of your life operating in this space and um you know looking at the topic of this book you know for a moment and uh, i think this is a bigger question that definitely will lead to some other areas of discussion but you know taking on on the topic like looking at a capital city like sacramento and then looking at st- strictly through the lens of the religious presence and getting even more specific through the Catholic presence in that city, how mm-hmm. are, are there any thoughts around like how does a religious presence or religious values contribute to the development of a city? Because that's that's not always an association that is super apparent mm-hmm. when you look at a city, whether it's this you know the skyline of a city or or just the contemporary version of a city like Sacramento, and then you try and wrap your head around the religious origins of that how how does that how do those things combine or come together excellent excellent question it's one i've thought about uh, quite a bit first of all uh, i would have to say in general uh, there are cities in in the united states that are known for their religious identity let's take salt lake city utah mm-hmm. okay that that's a boston uh, these these cities have very large and very visible uh religious identities and uh and the like. Sacramento is not that way. Sacramento is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a, an instant city. It grew up uh, sort of by accident on the shore there of, of the American and Sacramento rivers. And so and I, I would have to say, you know, in terms, Sacramento is not going to be like Salt Lake City. It's mm-hmm. not going to have a dominant uh, religious institution that sort of controls its culture, its life, its legal structure, so on. That being said, there, this is the way I break it down, Eric. Number one, one cannot underestimate the power of religious faith in people's lives. People do things because they believe, all right? They, they, they fight, they agitate for political issues, uh, they stake out turf, and they build institutions because they believe. Whenever I look at a church in Sacramento, you, you see in brick-and-mortar form the the incarnation of belief. Mm-hmm. And I, I put it this way when I talk to, to, to various Catholic groups. 
how many spaghetti dinners did it cost to build this <laughs> cinder block building? I mean, sure. there, how many Filipino dinners in second? You know, the, the, again, you're why do people do this? Why do they spend all day cooking or or fundraising or you know shaping things up because they believe and their belief is an effective agent, as my historical colleagues would say. But number two, and this perhaps would be of more direct relevance to you know. Folding, folding religion into the fabric of sacramental life. Religious institutions also have social functions. Number one, they're revenue generators and spenders. Mm-hmm. Okay, they raise money, and they spend it. They spend it in salaries. They spend it in goods and services. It's it's an economic engine of some sort. Now, discerning how much that is 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 not always easy, but without it. There would be some sort of a gap in in local revenue. Um, see, the cathedral in Sacramento attracts a lot of visitors. People would go, oh, well, I'll come to the capital, but I hear there's this nice cathedral up, up ahead, too. I think I'll take a look in there. So, you know, there, there might be an indirect, you know, one-to-one relationship there between tourism and, and Catholic churches. Uh, salaries, schools, uh, and other social welfare institutions are also uh, sustained by uh, religious belief. Take, take for example, the rescue mission out there near, near mm-hmm. uh, the Center for Sacramental History. That, that's run by a, a coalition of churches and very deeply influenced by the faith tenets of the people who run it. I was out there and, and spoke to the reverend, and he does what he does. He helps the homeless in Sacramento. Because he believes in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and so that 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 provides a something for the city, that provides you know health and well-being for at least the the clientele they have there, and again, it's a kind of a social function. If you even if you took away the motivation for this guy's work, you would still here. Here's there's a, here's a real social problem in Sacramento that this institution, the Rescue Mission, loaves and fishes. The Salvation Army. I mean, these are kind of the three major faith-based operations in the city. I mean, homelessness is a problem, and here mm-hmm. are people stepping up on their own. So you, you can, you know, excerpt from that. I don't have to believe anything they believe. I don't have to believe anything about human beings or faith in God or eternal life. But this is really an important function uh, for the city. They occupy urban space. Okay, mm-hmm. when you think about the layout of Sacramento, that grid pattern that we have, yeah, um, they they occupy some key space. Again, I'll go to the cathedral. The cathedral was built deliberately one block from the Capitol. Yeah, a very different architectural style, but church and state. The bishop who did that did that deliberately. He wanted he wanted the, the state and the church to occupy a kind of a, a different or, or their respective spheres within the city. Other urban space exists. Uh, for example, the Portuguese, Twelfth uh, uh, and S Street, yeah. build this little replica church from the Azores on that, that spot. Um, it sits on a corner. It faces kind of an angled church, just like Immaculate Conception in, in yeah. Oak Park. Same architect, uh, but the idea there was: this is our space. We, is that- we are the Portuguese people. Is that St. Elizabeth's by any St. Elizabeth's, yes. yeah. Yeah, I think my mom, my mom may have been married at that church, I think. Okay. So I've got a personal connection as well. That's a, that church was built early in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the Port- Portuguese workmen themselves did a lot of the construction. Uh, Shea and Loftquist, I think, were the architects for it. But, and then, then again, the distinctive style, it, sitting, uh, you know, sort of a jar, a kitty corner mm-hmm. on that, uh, that corner, is was kind of their signature. But uh, they're, again, subtract the religious faith from it. Portuguese people wanted a space mm-hmm. in the city, a place that they could call their own. So I, I look at those various functions, you know, space, religious space, economic generation, attendance to social needs. And again, I say, you don't have to believe a certain, anything that any of those people believe, Yeah. Uh, except I think you, you don't have to believe it, but you, if you don't understand it, I don't think you, you fully can grasp it. Mm-hmm. But, but, but be that as a bay, if you view them exclusively as secular institutions, they 
make a difference mm-hmm. in Sacramento. Without them, uh, it, it would have been a different place. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, there's a lot of, your book includes a lot of context, which is what I, I was enjoying a lot of as well. It's like looking at the different public works that the Catholics in Sacramento were pursuing, um, looking mm-hmm. at the different ethnic groups within the Catholic Church. That was something that caught me off guard a lot was, I don't know if infighting is too strong of a word, but the different priorities that some of the the Portuguese Catholics would have versus the Irish Catholics versus the um, you know the Mexican Catholics that were that were in the area at the time and the Italians, you know, and, and looking at the mm-hmm. dynamic there. I, and I did I a thought occurred to me preparing for this episode was uh, you know I think there is a section in the book that's talking about the the Irish influence in the church and how that how that differed from some of these other ethnic groups can you talk a little bit about that and and um some of the dynamics between some of these you know they all fall under the umbrella of catholic but they do they're coming from different places they have different countries of origin you know and how that mm-hmm. kind of uh you know rolled into this this uh history the irish were the dominant factor of sacramental Catholicism for many, many years, almost up until the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the leadership of the Catholic Church in, in, in um, the, the first three bishops of Sacramento were all Irish-born. Many of the priests were Irish-born. The nuns, the biggest single group of sisters, the Religious Sisters of Mercy, were primarily Irish women uh, for a long time. Uh, and so the the culture the life the the structuring of religious reality mm-hmm. that existed and was definitive in Sacramento was of Ireland and Ireland, the Irish Catholics have a different history all right Ireland is a very a very Catholic country at least it was up until present mm-hmm. when Catholic Irish moved into Sacramento. Um, they brought with them a very lively faith and devotion and also the heritage of Ireland. And in Ireland, for many, many years, until Ireland gets independence in the 1920s, um, they had kind of labored under the, the British thumb. Mm-hmm. And in Ireland, the, the, uh, the British government had co-opted the Catholic Church. Uh, it's a complicated history. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Irish really had to live with a very uh, limited uh, access to really beautiful churches. They had, they had kind of a bare-bones religious approach, very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a devotional life that was very much influenced by the kinds of priests and bishops that they had there. And they brought that over to Sacramento. Um, and so their their identity was kind of stamped on the Catholic Church for a long time. Really, until until the 1890s, there was only one Catholic church in Sacramento. That was St. Rose at 7th and K, mm-hmm. which I think now is kind of a, is a skating rink. That's okay. where it, it, it named for someone who, whose name I don't remember. It obviously may have been a very mm-hmm. important person, but I don't recognize the name of who, for whom it's named. It used to be called St. Rose Plaza. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the only Catholic church in the city, and they had Irish pastors, Irish nuns worked there, taught there. And then eventually other ethnic groups came. uh, And although they shared a common faith, they believed in in the same things, the cultural expression of that faith was different Mm. uh, in terms of their expectations of worship, their music, their devotional life, uh, and and just the internal structure of their of their religious identity. Again, they were all Catholic, but within Catholicism is like let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah. <laughs> Long before Mao said it, the Catholics yeah. were doing that. And the first group that really kind of graded against this Irish dominance were German speakers, German speakers who came to the city and uh, kind of formed their own enclave and wanted their own church. They wanted a place where other than St. Rose, where they could express their German form of Catholicism mm-hmm. in their own particular way. And, and they met resistance from the Irish leadership. Because if you start building other churches, that's going to diminish revenue into the one church. 
if you start building, you know, people are going to fall away and you're going to have problems of various sorts. And the Irish were pretty adamant that this is our city. This is mm-hmm. our church. Our, uh, we're the bosses here. Well, ultimately, you know, things changed and grew and the city grew eastward enough so that eventually the Germans, the German speakers got their own parish, which is called St. Francis of Assisi. Mm-hmm. They got Franciscan friars to come out there uh, to build a church and then later to build a church that resembled a mission yeah. because Sacramento didn't have a mission like, you know, uh, other parts of California right across from Sutter's Fort. That's there. right. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and then while the Germans kind of operated, uh, you know, well, this is a parish just for people who lived in this territory. You, know, you don't have to be German to come here. And that was always the case. It was understood that that was a German parish. They had services uh, available for German speakers. You could go to confession there, which is a big thing for Catholics. And, and you have a German padre listen to you and help mm-hmm. you. You had German devotions. And the, the decor of St. Francis Church is very elaborate, mm-hmm. more elaborate than, than any Irish church. Elaborate stained glass, beautiful woodwork. The woodwork in St. Francis Church was rescued from the state capitol when oh, they wow. dismantled portions of the state capitol. So if you go up to the banister, up to the choir loft, it's got the California artichoke. <laughs> they, they rescued that. Wow. That money, these very, very uh, resourceful people. And then there was a cadre of German leaders. The, the, the Diepenbrocks, a big Sacramento name still today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kulats, names of people who ran the dairies. There were a number of Swiss, German-speaking Swiss who ran dairies like in like Indercombe and, mm-hmm. and, and others that that were also contributors to all this. Well, then the, the same dynamic replicates itself with the Italians who want their own church, mm-hmm. uh, then the Portuguese who want their own church. Uh, and why do they want this? Well, again, they're looking for a place that provides them the kind of cultural experience that they knew in their home countries. And some people have said that that ethnic parishes, and by the way, not just Catholic, the German Lutherans, there were German Lutherans, St. John's mm-hmm. Lutheran in, in, in Sacramento was a German congregation, but they wanted a cultural experience that spoke to them that that mm-hmm. that spoke literally spoke their language literally understood their culture and and could kind of be a way station to many of them in on the way to becoming americanized mm-hmm. and and i think that was the social function of the church now they got they had resistance uh, to all this and i try to accentuate in the chapters on the ethnic churches the role of particular laypersons Mm-hmm. Okay, in in the case of of the Germans, you had uh, Melchior Diepenbrock, who was a leader. You had August Kulat, who was probably one of the wealthiest men in Sacramento. He, mm-hmm. he would contribute to the cathedral quite mm-hmm. substantially as well, too. Luigi Cafaro for for the Italians. Mm-hmm. The Portuguese had their had had their people, uh, and the Spanish speaking had a fellow by the name of Federico Falcon. Federico mm-hmm. Falcon was a layman. He was from Mexico and had come to Sacramento and worked as worked for the Southern Pacific at first, and then becomes a social worker and and really kind of works with the fledgling Spanish-speaking community in Sacramento and ultimately, you know, helps them coalesce as a community and eventually get their own church. Mm-hmm. So these people, Falcon and Cafaro and and Diepenbrock. And Kulat, these are people, again, some may know their names. Diepenbrock would, would of course, be a big name in Sacramento. They were lawyers, they were physicians, they were very professional people. And again, many of them are still around in the city, very admirable people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but, um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to lift them up as people who, you know, in the Catholic Church, uh, it's a hierarchical church, and people in authority have a lot of real authority. But here were these people who stood up and said, no, we want our own church. You don't want us to have one? We want one, and we're yeah. going to have one. Yeah. And, and I'll, I kind of lay out how this, this happens with the respective ethnic groups. 
Got it. Well, norm normally this I'm tempted to go down the path of uh, you know, exploring because you do a great job in the book of of examining um some of the male figures as well as some of the female figures. And normally this is where I would take an opportunity to to explore that a little bit further. But the this dynamic of groups within Catholicism in Sacramento and treating them as a as a whole operating in a larger social context. I want to kind of work through that a little bit more because, you know, in the United States, we have such a strong, uh, the Protestant tradition in the United States mm-hmm. goes back all the way to the, to the founding of the country. And before was, and, and I I've encountered some reports in my exploration of just American history across the board of friction, some serious friction at times between Catholics and the Protestants in any number of of um, uh, states or communities and things like that, and I, I wanted to ask: Was there any evidence in in your looking at this topic of Catholics in Sacramento of that that friction of, of treating Catholics as a as a group, even though we know they're not a, a a homogenous group, there are layers within them, but treating them as a group for a second, was there any accounts of friction between them and a and a Protestant uh, presence in Sacramento, any discrimination, things like that, that's seen elsewhere? Very much so. Very much so. There were there were notorious outbursts of anti-Catholicism in Sacramento's history that were local manifestations of larger national movements. Mm-hmm. Number one, in the 1850s, now this is a rather early time in Sacramento's history, but there was a movement called the Know Nothing. This was an anti-immigrant uh, political and social movement that coalesced into a major political party. The Mm -hmm. the Know-Nothings ran candidates for legislature, for state office, and for uh and for federal office. There were Mm -hmm. there was there were no nothing there was a know-nothing candidate for president in 1852. And eventually the, the, the party kind of fell apart by 1856. But there were manifestations in Sacramento. You saw them expressed on the pages of the Sacramento Union, uh, one of the major papers in the city at that time, mm-hmm. and you know, expressing concerns about Roman, uh, which is kind of the code word for Catholic uh, interference in politics, and and concerns that the Catholic Church was anti-democratic, and and really con- existed as in, with ideas contrary to the development of American democracy and freedom. Mm-hmm. That kind of fades away. The 1860s come, of course, it's the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You see a reemergence of this anti-foreign, and that was probably the largest block of, of, of Sacramento Catholics, anti-foreign, anti-Catholic um, experience in the 1880s and especially in the 1890s with the emergence of an organization, a national organization, which has a local chapter called the American Protective Association. Now, this was probably the most overtly anti-Catholic movement that affected Sacramento. Many Protestant ministers in the city, including pastors of, of the big, like First Baptist, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, in particular, but the Baptists and the Presbyterians were probably the most vocal really were anxious about the presence of foreign-born Catholics in their midst. And uh, since the American Protective Association sponsored mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, political candidates, people who ran for city council, people who ran for local offices, uh, people who were on the police force and the, the ranks of, of public school teachers, the APA, as it's called, uh, was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and uh, they managed to make some political headway in the 1890s. But they're leading up to elections in particular. There, there could be some very harsh anti-Catholic invective from some of the ministers. The ministers, the Protestant ministers in Sacramento formed an organization called the Ministerial Union. Hmm. And their collective attitude I wouldn't say this was true of all of them, but their collective attitude was Catholicism and particularly foreign-born Catholics were a threat to the civic well-being of Sacramento. Mm. Now, I don't. I, I, the person who opposed them most vocally was C.K. McClatchy. Mm-hmm. He 
he took off after them on almost every page of the beat. <laughs> all during this particular period he identified them he made fun of them he did things I, I didn't find a lot of evidence of catholics themselves speaking up but i don't know you know perhaps i missed uh, a uh, sources that may be out there yeah but it was mcclatchy a fallen away catholic he was born a catholic his wife was very catholic yeah. all his kids were baptized you know all the mcclatchy clans were but they they didn't follow through on on their religious traditions mm. but but uh the apa and this, this exists primarily in the early 1890s the less than final big outburst was in the 20s with the rise of the ku klux klan mm-hmm and the Klan was a multi-purpose hater. All right. Mm-hmm. The Klan of the 1920s is subject to a lot of discussion about what it really was. There's some very good books about, about the Klan. They're, they appealed to women. They appealed to people in states other than the Deep South. They mm-hmm. were very politically active. Uh, the Klan in Sacramento has had some coverage, but you know there's still lots, lots and lots to do uh, with them. But they too were capable of making very, you know, uh, unusual statements uh, about the Catholic Church. One of their cleagles, you know, the, everything began with a K with the Klan. One of their cleagles, one of their local leaders, um, occasionally would spout off about the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And again, the only person who really attacked him publicly was McClatchy, but he was also joined by. Uh, city officials and others who worried that this group had infiltrated the police department and and other city agencies and and they weren't going to have this because they mm-hmm. the, the 1920s Sacramento was really really concerned about its image it began to refurbish its downtown it began to look we're a modern city we're going to move forward we're going to change the city and this this group of you know of of uh, uh, reactionaries are not good for our image. Well, mm-hmm. you know, they flourished for a time, but that, that would probably be, uh, you know, y- others might identify other areas where the Catholic church uh, would become the subject of, of, of rather negative public comment, uh, probably most recently, you know, with, with the revelation of all the sexual abuse that, that, that has not been, well, that's an objectively horrible thing, yeah. but, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, um, you know, certainly not good for the image of the church, but yeah, the APA and the Klan would be two moments where political leaders or mm-hmm. re- religious leaders would take off. Westminster Presbyterian Church, uh, a great and beautiful place now, uh, a wonderful. They were most gracious to the Catholic Church when the cathedral was being renovated. Masses were held in there, but the wow. Westminster Presbyterian Church was a most was one of the most receptive places for clan activity yeah. in those days. Now, again, they, they would be embarrassed by that. And I, and again, I want to make sure that we understand that that's not the way Westminster Westminster is a, a beautiful, positive contribution to, to the well-being of Sacramento. And again, they don't hate Catholics, but, yeah. but uh, in those days, yeah, there was, there was some uh, ride em cowboy yeah. attitude towards the Catholic, the Catholic church. Well, and it sounds, it sounds like it was a, uh you know, the issues and the challenges that were faced by the Catholic Church then may be a different menu of challenges, but it sounds just as dynamic as as the Catholic Church today and, and mm-hmm. some of the, you know, some of the issues that are being um, worked through and things like that. And it's, um yeah, that's one of the parts of the book that I found just fascinating is like, you know, looking at these chapters in Catholic history in Sacramento and what some of the issues of the day were then and how they, you know, how they stack up or compare to, to issues and and goals and challenges that the church has nowadays, not just in Sacramento, but, you know, other, other locations as well, you know, and in, in the book, you, you chronicle, you know, you make mention of, I, 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 it seems like you make mention of a healthy distribution of both lay people as well as as clergy and, and folks that are um, operating within the ranks of of the the church, look looking at that group, is there anybody that you feel captures that spirit, that indomitable spirit? I mean, if they made it into the book, I'm assuming they have at least a little bit, you know, of mm-hmm. that indomitable spirit. But any any you know two or three or handful 
the folks that stuck out to you more as capturing that spirit? Well, truly for me, the, the great discovery and the person I have been harping on for a long time uh, is Dr. Gregory Phelan, one of the first physicians in the city, comes to the city right in the heart of the gold rush. The city is you know, full of people and it's kind of a charnel house of waterborne illnesses. And this guy is working with them and burying them. He's, and he's, he's uh, a devout Catholic layman from New York later will marry the sister of a couple of bishops. And that kind of reinforces his Catholic identity. But he was, he had, was a man really full of a lot of anxious concern about the well-being of people and he watched a lot of people die, you know, of dysentery, of cholera, and other things that, again, born in the water there and the bad sanitation of early Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And he, he laments. There's a little tiny diary fragment of his diary left in in the collections of the California Room at at the State Library. But he he, he talked about sitting with these people and, and then watching them die and then taking them out to bury them. And they said, and he, they died without the benefits of religion. They died without anybody to pray with them. Mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing him. Died mm-hmm. without anybody to kind of transition them to, to the life beyond. And that, that really seized him. And, and because of that, because the, the place lacked the consistent ministry of a priest, which is in the Catholic world, that's, that's very integral to, religious identity and, and, and access to the mass and access to the other sacraments, which are important in the life of a Catholic. He worked diligently to bring Catholic priests to Sacramento and to help create the, the primary Catholic community of, of Sacramento, which would culminate in the building of St. Rose church. And he, he then, once that got started, he, he moved more, more uh, diligently into his affairs as a doctor, he become the first head of the Sacramento Medical Society, so on. Eventually, would leave the city mm-hmm. and uh, reside abroad for a while. And then lived. I think he died in San Francisco. But uh, Doctor Phelan is one of these people again. Sincerely, as far as I can tell, sincerely, genuinely motivated by his concern for people's immortal souls. That. Mm-hmm. Help to organize the Catholic Church. They generally attribute that they, meaning historians of the past, <laughs> that to uh, the ministrations of a, of a wandering priest by the name of Peter Anderson, and he, and he was there and he he helped. But it was Phelan who was the, the the common thread. He's the one who kept getting people together. He's the one who kind of organized uh, folks to say, okay, now we need to buy some property. Need to get we need to get ourselves established he he contributed substantially to the visibility uh, of the church the next one that i would point out would be uh the women of the uh, of the cathedral mm-hmm. uh, he, bishop patrick minogue would be the person who would would be the great uh you know artificer of the cathedral yeah but he had um two women who helped him significantly two women whom he had helped when they were going through particularly difficult times. One was Teresa fair. Mm -hmm. She was, she was the wife of one of the, the uh, Comstock load uh, silver multi-zillionaires. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, a woman by the name of Maria Louise Mackey, Mm -hmm. Uh, Maria Louise Mackey. Now both of these women, Teresa fair, had been a, a strong supporter of Minogue in Virginia City, where all this, you know, silver mining had taken place, mm-hmm. and she contributed to anything that that he did. He built churches there, and so on and so forth. And when he he wanted to build this cathedral in Sacramento, she she built a house behind the present cathedral. It was it filled a half the half of a block there. It's gone now. I think Ella's restaurant is there now where, mm-hmm. where, where that house sat. But it was a beautiful three-story mansard house there. I tried to find a good picture of it. But she was, she was extraordinarily generous, not only for the church in Sacramento, but also the church in San Francisco. She contributed, she moved there and, you know, uh, with, after she was divorced. And that was the, where she really got close to Minogue. Her husband cheated on her. Yeah. And, and uh, Minogue came and 
kind of testified for to her good character. He she he she didn't do this. He did. Mm-hmm. The other was Maria Louise Mackey, who was married at first to an abusive doctor who beat her and then uh, actually crippled the daughter they had. And he, wow. he he was a very coarse and violent man. Apparently, he was an addict and an alcoholic, uh, and uh, he died, leaving her sort of on her own in Virginia City. And and Minogue helped her. He said, "Come on, I'll, I'll find you work." Oh, oh, she he helped her bury the daughter and did all kinds of things. Well, Maria Louise married John W. McKay. McKay School of Mines in mm-hmm. in the University mm-hmm. of Nevada, Reno. And McKay also, at the behest of his wife, but also because he liked Minogue too, gave tons and tons of money to Minogue in Virginia City. And then, by tradition, gave as much as $100,000 to the building of the cathedral in Sacramento. But that was Minogue's great dream, to build that beautiful yeah. church in, in the heart of the city. And I... I you know, I'm but I'm prejudiced. I think it's one of the most beautiful, architecturally elegant buildings in the city of Sacramento. The Capitol, that, and oh, there's a few other buildings around town that are just just spectacular, including the Sacramento City Hall. I love Sacramento City Hall. Yeah. Uh, so these two women, again, contributed substantially. I mean, their their intercession, their good fortune, their they're badgering their husbands, uh-huh. uh, if you will, or drawing from their own because because uh, Teresa Fair got a huge divorce settlement thanks to Minogue in part mm-hmm. two. He 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 you know, he he was going to give her nothing or little to nothing, and then he went to no 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 you've got to give you got to get more here out of this thing, mm-hmm. and and uh, I think their role in the history of the building of the cathedral is understated. Mm-hmm. These two women really, I think deserve the title of co-foundresses of the cathedral. I really do. And again, all you would ever hear about is Minogue. You would never see any pictures of these women or even of Dr. Phelan. There there should be, you know, in the pantheon of remembrance, they should, they should have been commemorated in some way. Uh, And, you know, people might disagree with me. They, they, they like the old story of father Anderson doing everything and Minogue and McKay and all that sort of stuff. Uh, But I think, these are hidden figures, like those yeah. African American women in the space program. Yeah, the, 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 something happened here, and it wasn't just one person who did it. It was uh, uh, these women, and, and these. The role of these women is even more accentuated because the people of Sacramento did not want to pay yeah. for this big cathedral. They 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 fell far short of any kind of fund. Minogue knew this that they weren't going to pony up for this huge it was a bigger cathedral than sacramento could afford yeah but he built it and yeah. he built it with their help nice no that's a i love that the way you phrase that the pantheon of a of a city's figures uh i would be so curious um to know not just sacramento but a lot of major cities out there if they did have a pantheon of all the figures famous and unknown you know who who would make it who would make the cut you know it's that's a an interesting question to consider, no matter where our listeners are tuning in from, where, whether it's Salt Lake City, Boston, beyond, you know. I think as we were, I think, approaching the hour mark, so just a, a few more questions uh, I wanted to, to to cover. You know, looking at the book as a whole and looking at the, the subject matter that it covers, what lessons do you feel that this account of Sacramento's Catholic past offer non-Catholics in particular, because I think there's a certain degree of internal motivation that that Catholics would have looking at this subject matter, but any specific lessons that come to mind that you feel would appeal to to non-Catholic listeners? I, I believe that it would be, first of all, important for religious figures, and particularly people with an interest in history, to get together and to discuss the contributions of their respective faith communities to the well-being of Sacramento, to just like a a symposium, something held up at the Sacopolis Gallery, where people form a panel and they say, okay, here here is the Methodist Church, here are the Baptists, here's what the Presbyterians have done, here's what the Lutherans have done. Just 
to, to speak these things so that everybody gets a chance to hear, to listen, to ask questions mm. about these faith traditions. And it's my belief, maybe a naive one, that mm -hmm. out of this would come a greater consciousness awareness of the role of religious communities in the shaping of urban culture in mm -hmm. Sacramento. Sacramento is small enough, but also diverse enough to, to put, you know, to make this. And, and this would also include, you know, Mormons, Asian religions, various kinds of new age religious things. So all of these groups, I think have a play, literally a place at the table. And, and then out of that, I think like an academic to compile you know, a kind of a set of, of, of these essays and, and make that available. Number two, I would think that a history from the bottom up, mm -hmm. right, uh, focus on the non-elites, on the ministers or on the church wardens or the deacons or whatever rank of hierarchy exists within these churches, but on the ordinary folks who did the work, the people who launched the fundraising, the people who uh, took care of ordinary things, the people who made significant contributions to the building of churches, to the, to the well-being of communities, uh, people who were significant social activists, these kinds of institutions, these kinds of histories need to be recorded and, and heard. Uh, now some of these churches are old, you know, they're the, 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 the Congregational church, for example, the one that's across from Sutter's Fort, that was one of the oldest churches in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And you know, I wonder how much of their history they know. I wonder it was, you know, the the Reverend Benton was in charge of the uh, of that church for many years, and he was perhaps the most influential minister in early Sacramento. And there's a picture of him at the breaking of the ground. For the for the Central Pacific, if mm. you go on the, to our our, our uh, railway terminal there, you see that big mural up above the uh, one of the walls there. He's there, yeah, offering a prayer for that day. And I can't think of an event other than you know raising the the level of the streets and building that the, the the railroad made Sacramento. Mm. The railroad and the, the establishment of those those rail shops and those that provided economic stability, good jobs uh, in the city. For, for many, many years. Well, you know, he, somebody like Benton needs to be uh, better known and understood. There, so I would urge each of these communities to deploy the skills of people interested in their community. And there, there are people who are interested. I, I wanted to say this, Eric, yeah. and you had, you had mentioned this before uh, about the interest in history. Sacramento has got a remarkable, a remarkable cadre of people who are interested in history. Mm -hmm. I, I have found this in my own experience, writing Sacramento history, been to meetings, seen the popularity of books that are built, that are, are, are about the city uh, uh, and, and the, the, you know, the access that people have to, to histories of the city. They're, they're very curious about this. Yeah. Um, uh, and Sacramento has really got, a, a vital and vivid interest in local history. I, I think in congregations and religious communities that have the wherewithal, have the resources, that that they should start to gather materials that can be part of a later of, of a significant history. And then finally, you know, something that accentuates the spiritual motivation of people to do things in Sacramento. And there, obviously, I, I'll come back to it again the care of the homeless, which again, mm -hmm. is such a pressing public and visible issue uh, in the city. Uh, obviously the city, the county, the state, the federal government do a heck of a lot uh, to, to alleviate, to remediate this, this cerebral serious problem, but also do people of faith, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, I mean, all you have from that, from my faith tradition, you go to loaves and fishes and you see hundreds and hundreds of people who come there, uh, it's just amazing. The Salvation Army is, uh, facility, or they're on Alhambra, unbelievably important programs and really inspired leadership. Uh, same thing with the rescue mission. Um, 
I'm just overwhelmed by what they do. And and that, you know, it's easy for guys like me to come in, come in and look at it and just ooh and ah. But I mean, this is gritty work. Yeah. Difficult people. And nobody needs to romanticize the fate of the poor and and the unhoused in in Sacramento. Um, But there again, if I were to, to, to encourage a, a trajectory of development for uh, the history, the religious history of, of Sacramento, bottom up yeah. and, and focused on the practical works of mercy. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, excuse me. I think that's a wonderful place to, to end on. I think, um, yeah, whether you're constructing a cathedral in the, you know, 19th century or trying to address some of the 21st century challenges that Sacramento's facing. Um, it takes, it takes a village, you know, it takes people of all, all different traditions, which is what was so great, you know, reading your book and seeing how, yeah, just seeing the diversity of backgrounds that people had who were coming together to, to accomplish important projects and tasks and things like that. It's fascinating. I think last, last thing before, before we wrap up here, just one more time, um, I know we talked about this at the start, but for folks that are interested in getting their hands on this book, where can they where can they find it? Well, I'm assured that the, the books are en route from their printery place, which I believe is in Great Britain. Okay, and they said any day now they should be arriving, which means I hope they will be then available to the normal book distributors like Amazon. Arcadia Press is the one that's doing the marketing here in Sacramento. They've done a lot of books about Sacramento history. So www.arcadia.com or amazon.com. The title Mm -hmm. is Sacramento, Indomitable Sacramentans, A Social History of the Catholic Church in Sacramento. I will be doing some other presentations in the city during the summer. I'll be at the Center for Sacramento History. Uh, I'll be at the Sacramento Historical Society. Uh, those dates will be gelled up and crystallized fairly soon. Yeah, I think May 25th is the date for the Center for Sacramento History. Always a good friend. Uh, yeah. And uh, then I've reached out to various bookstores uh, in the area here. Like uh, there's a new one, Capital Books. I think it's on uh, yeah. it's on K Street. Yeah. And then they there is um, not avid reader, but um, and we can put links too. We can yeah, put links, and yeah. when we pu- uh, publish this episode, we can put links to all the various locations. Okay. Yeah, we've. I've made contact. I haven't heard from them yet because I'm sure they're waiting to see the book itself. And, yeah. And carry it, but I'm I'm certain that hopefully they'll, uh, because I've published in this area before, that my work will be acceptable. I hope it will be, and and. Uh, it will be helpful to Sacramento history, which I yeah. and the city of Sacramento, which I love very much. It's my home. Yeah. It's really it's my, where I grew up. Well, ec- exciting times, Steve. Um, and again, congrats on on seeing the seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel. I think of this of this uh, process of writing another book. Congrats again, and then thank you for taking the time this afternoon. You know, to connect and talk through the the subject matter, and also just. You know, something I find equally as fascinating is just the process. So thanks for thanks for taking yeah. the time. Thank you, Eric. You got great questions, and this was a wonderful, stimulating hour. I, I, I love talking about this stuff, but thank you. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Sacramento Historical Society's The American Attic. If you'd like to learn more about the Society and upcoming speaker series, please visit sachistoricalsociety.org. If you have ideas for topics and speakers we can engage, drop us a line at admin at sachistoricalsociety.org. See you next time.